Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. My Bible is opened up to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. I'll invite you to be finding a Bible and join me there. Ecclesiastes 5 is going to serve as the launching point for everything that we are going to talk about for these next few minutes from the Word of God. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. It is great to see everybody this morning. Got just a, a full house. Got a number of folks that are visiting with us, some folks that are maybe even some first-time guests. We appreciate so much the fact that you're here with us, you encourage us, and you honor us with your presence, and hope you'll give us a chance to get to uh, introduce ourselves to you and get to know you a little bit before you get away from us. I hope that God has been glorified as we've sung these good songs this morning and humbled ourselves before Him in prayer, uh, and as we've been edified in the midst of all that, and I hope all of us are going to be able to leave today saying that it was good for us to be here. This morning we return to our preaching theme for 2019 as we consider just some particular areas of our life where we want to be growing and increasing. We are talking about some things that maybe we already do, in fact maybe even some areas that we think we do well, but is it possible that maybe there is some room for improvement? Is it possible that maybe we can do even better? That's what growing and maturing is all about. In Jesus Christ there's never a point where we reach and say, oh, I'm there, I'm done. No, we're always growing and increasing. And this morning, we're going to bring all of that discussion home. Last month, in last month's installment, I talked a little bit about family life as we talk about growing our kids nearer to the kingdom of God. And this morning, I want to continue to talk about the home and specifically to talk about about the husband and wife relationship. Read with me, if you will, then, in Ecclesiastes 5. This is verse number 2. In Ecclesiastes 5 and verse 2, the wise man says, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let me direct your attention to the screen and tell me if any of these words sound familiar to you. I take you to be my lawfully wedded spouse, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish from this day forward until death do we part. Those words ought to sound familiar because many of us have said those words or at least something close to those words. Those are the words that we spoke to our beloved in the presence of witnesses, as we exchanged rings, and as we promised to live together and dwell together as husband and his wife for as long as we both should live. Those are, those are wedding vows. And that makes those words more than just words. It makes them very special words because those are promises. Those are sacred promises that we make to each other as we enter into this new lifelong commitment known as marriage. And of course, there are lots of variations to those particular vows. Many couples today are writing their own vows, maybe as a way of kind of, kind of making them more personal, making them more specific. I got looking around on the internet a little bit and I kind of was, uh, kind of entertained somewhat about some of the very specific vows that couples have included in theirs. For example, one groom said this, I promise to unclog the tub even though only one of us has long hair. That, I, I sympathize with that guy. 
Or what about this one? I I really wish I would have made Tiffany include this in her vows to me. I promise to laugh at all of your Monty Python references. Fellow Monty Python fans, maybe you can sympathize with that. How about this one? I promise to get up and get the remote from across the room, even if it was not I who placed it so very, very far away. I like this one. This is the one that made me laugh the very most. This is one that probably all guys should absolutely demand that their future brides vow and promise. I promise to always have eyebrows even after I wash my makeup at night. Yes, there's lots of different vows that people make. But whether it's the traditional vows or whether it's some of these more non-traditional vows, I think we as the people of God we understand probably better than anybody else in this world that those vows, they are important. Because we understand that not only are those promises being made, not only are those vows between a man and a woman, but those are vows being made between a man and a woman and Almighty God who created this marriage relationship. And our text that we began with in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 speaks to the seriousness of keeping and honoring the vows that we make before God. Pay what you vow, the wise man says. Yet even as I say that, sometimes we have trouble following through on those vows, don't we? Sometimes we have trouble following through on all those promises that we made on that fateful day when we stood hand in hand and we recited those words. We don't always quite live up to the pledges that we made. And I wonder... I wonder if maybe that's due at least somewhat to the vows that we said that maybe they just didn't really address the specifics going on of what exactly is happening in marriage on a day-to-day basis. When you stop and think about it, especially those traditional vows that are commonly said, those vows that are almost kind of cliched in some ways, the for better or for worse, richer or poorer kinds of stuff, they're so broad Those vows are so general, in some ways they're a little bit vague, and I'm afraid that sometimes they don't seem to pack the kind of punch that's really necessary when you're trying to live with somebody 24-7, 365 days a year. And I really don't even need to get off on a soapbox about some of these other vows. You know, a funny little vow included in the vows about Monty Python or about the remote control, that might get a giggle in the ceremony, But I'm not really sure that that's really going to carry a lot of weight and really going to help us as we're trying to dwell as husband and wife day after day. So what exactly then does it take to grow and to build our marriages to be everything that God wants them to be? Well, I believe maybe a good place for us to start is by just reassessing those marriage vows and let's see if we can put some teeth on them. Let's go back to the drawing board and let's see if maybe we can strengthen the vows that we made. Let's see if we can tighten them up just a little bit. And listen, even as I say all that, I am not opposed to the old-fashioned vows. In fact, I honestly prefer them. Those were the vows that Tiffany and I said at our wedding ceremony when I've conducted weddings. If the bride and groom didn't already have their own vows prepared, I relied on the traditional ones. But I'll tell you this, I do think that if we will take the time to look at those vows and make them more specific, if we'll get more detailed in the promises that we have made to our spouses, then our marriages can indeed get better, deeper, and stronger as we strive to serve the Lord together. This morning, I want to share with you four specific things 
that we ought to be vowing in our marriages. And i got to tell you, even if we did not vow these things specifically back then, we can certainly look at them now and we can vow to start doing these things today. Four promises that will help us to strengthen the marriage bond and help us to grow together in Jesus Christ. And that all begins with promise number one. I promise to make Ephesians chapter 4 the rule of our daily lives. Now maybe before we make that promise, we ought to actually read what Ephesians 4 says. So let's get over there in Ephesians chapter 4. Right here at the end of this great chapter, Paul gets very, very practical. He's laid out all kinds of important doctrine in the first half of this chapter. But in the back half of the chapter, he starts talking just nuts and bolts stuff. In Ephesians chapter 4, he concludes all that in verses 31 and 32 when he says this. He says, Ephesians 4, 31, Let all bitterness and wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you, along with all malice, verse 32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Why is it that so many marriages break down? You know, nobody sees their bride walking down the aisle on that wedding day and thinks to themselves, you know what? Two years from now, we're going to be in counseling. Nobody thinks that. Nobody, no couple as they're cutting the ceremonial wedding cake thinks to themselves, ha, ten years from now, we're going to be cutting all of the marital assets apart as we go through a big, long, drawn-out, messy divorce. Nobody enters into marriage with those kinds of expectations. So why then do marriages break down? I, I guess we would probably offer lots of answers to that. Financial problems can certainly factor in. Sexual infidelity, that certainly factors into the equation. But I've got to tell you, I believe a failure to practice Ephesians chapter 4, it is a huge factor in why many marriages fall apart. Because sometimes what happens is, is husbands and wives, they just lose just basic common courtesy for, for one another. And I do think that's exactly what Ephesians chapter 4, 31 and 32 is talking about. You want to start talking about some real life, everyday kinds of things in marriage? This passage may not be your classic marriage passage like 1 Corinthians 3 or Song of Solomon. But you know what? It does speak to how we treat one another in a day-to-day existence. That passage says some things there about controlling our temper, about bridling our tongue about eliminating bad attitudes and hardness of heart from our lives, getting hard words out of our mouths. It says some things in verse 32 about demonstrating kindness and having compassion and being considerate and not holding a grudge. Why? Because we are forgiving one another. That passage says some things about treating each other right. You know, there might be a whole lot of ways to sum up that passage, but I think at the end of the day, it's just calling for common courtesy. And do you want to know what goes out of the window in most marriages as soon as the glow of the honeymoon fades away? Common courtesy. Simply being considerate of one another. Husbands and wives, I have noticed, I've noticed this in my own marriage, that I often talk harsher to my wife than I would a neighbor or a co-worker, or even a random stranger on the street. Suddenly, because we're married now, none of that really matters anymore. 
I mean, we're already in this thing. We're already kind of bound to one another. So I can just kind of say whatever I want, whenever I want, in whatever tone I want. What did Solomon say in Proverbs 15 and verse 1? A soft answer turns away wrath. Courtesy, kindness, those kinds of things make a difference. And by the way, this is part of the reason why I'm not real big on date night. You've never heard me get up and preach that husbands and wives, the way to fix your marriage problems is you need to go have date night once a week or once a month. It seems that for some, what date night really means is, is that once a week or once a month, we're going to go back to acting the way that we did before we got married. And then after date night's over, we're going to slip right back into those bad attitudes and those hard words and all of that bad stuff. I'm going to on date night, I'm going to, I'm going to be really respectful of my wife going to be real nice to her, going to open up the door, going to speak kindly during that time. Listen, God does not intend for that stuff to be a once a week or a once a month kind of thing. The conduct described in Ephesians 4, 31 and 32, that's an all the time thing. We need to vow to our spouse that we are going to show them that kind of consideration and respect every single day. That basic human courtesy, that's going to be the rule of our marriage. That is a vow and that is a promise that I believe will make our marriages stronger. And I would add to that this second promise. I promise to never flirt with or lust after or seek the attention of someone of the opposite sex. Can we talk for just a second about sexual intimacy in marriage? I want to say very clearly, sexual intimacy is not the most important part of marriage. It is not 100% of marriage. Yet even as I say that, I want to acknowledge that it is a unique and special blessing that God has given us to be used in marriage in order to bond a couple together. Would you find the Song of Solomon? I mentioned Song of Solomon a second ago. Let's just get over there to Song of Solomon. In Song of Solomon chapter 5, this is right here kind of in the very middle, the center of this story about a young man and a young woman and about the joys of married love. And as this couple, by the time you get to the end of chapter 4, the couple, they're now married. They are husband and wife. And what's going to go on now, now that they are husband and wife? Well, look at the, actually look at the very end of chapter 4, the final statement there. What does she say? She says, let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. He then says, I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. And then all the others, they said, eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. Now... There's a lot of poetic language going on there, but, but you see, don't you? What's being described here is the joining together of a man and a woman in the joys, the privilege, the blessing of marital intimacy the way that God created and designed for it to be. And when that is shared with someone outside of marriage, it is such a sledgehammer blow to the trust and the core of what that marriage needs to be, that even Jesus Himself will say in Matthew chapter 19, that when you betray that, I'm not even sure that a marriage can survive. Yet we live in a time that that is more common than ever before. 
It seems like just about any time when you're catching up with some old friends or you're asking about how some folks are doing, what do you hear? Hey, hey, how, how's Jim and Susie doing? Oh, man, I ain't seen them in forever. How are they doing? Oh, you, you didn't hear? You didn't hear? Jim left Susie. He ran off with another woman. Or hey, well, what's the latest on Jack and Jill and their cute little family? Oh, I, I guess you didn't get the news about that. Jack caught Jill cheating on him with another man. All the time, all around us, we see the carnage of adultery and sexual immorality and it is heartbreaking. And so when we get married as God's people, we vow, we promise to our spouse, that is never going to happen. I will not allow that to happen. We promise sexual fidelity and faithfulness to this one person. We vow exclusivity of our bodies and of everything about us to this one mate. But I'm going to suggest to you this morning that in order to keep that vow, the vow about forsaking all others, in order to keep that, we're going to need to back up. We're going to need to rewind a few steps. Because way before there is adultery, way before there is any of the sexual immorality of the physical act, there is there is joking, and there is flirting, and there is innuendo. There is trying to catch that other person's eye even for just a passing moment. There is imagining and there is thinking about somebody else. And maybe the biggest crack in that dam that leads to just utter destruction is when we begin to confide our troubles in someone of the opposite sex. We take them into our confidence. We seek emotional refuge with this other person. Instead of with our spouse. We talk with this other person about the troubles in our marriage and how things just aren't working there. We try to impress someone who is not our spouse. We start sharing our feelings with this other person who is fast becoming something much, much more. Do you know what that is? That is emotional adultery. That is unfaithfulness in the heart. And when we are involved in that, then all the devil needs to do now is to arrange the time and the place where our body can now follow our heart. And the devil's really good at that. He's way too good at that. That's why Jesus says what he does in Matthew chapter 5. Would you find Matthew 5? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus kind of puts a new spin on an old command. In Matthew chapter 5, here in verse 27, Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. And that is exactly what the old law said. Verse 28, But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus goes on to say in verses 29 and 30 that we must be ready and willing to take any measures, even extreme measures, to prevent that from happening. And I think sometimes when we read those verses, especially here in our 21st century digital online world, we're inclined to think of that as, okay, that's a great rebuke and a great warning against pornography, online pornography especially. And make no mistake, there's an application that can be made there to pornography. But what about looking at someone emotionally? Seeing him as my new knight in shining armor. Looking at her and thinking to myself, oh, she really understands me. She really gets me. 
Jesus says, stop it. Just stop it. Stop it right there. Because not only must we pledge our physical purity, even more so we must pledge our mental and emotional purity. That is what we must vow. Never to flirt. Never to lust. Never to want the attention of someone of the opposite sex. That alone is for my spouse. That alone is for my mate. That is the promise that I need to make. Just like I need to make this third promise. And let's get really specific now. I promise, I promise to look at you more than I look at my phone. Now, I often sit and wonder about how things were back in frontier days. And I often wonder, what did couples argue and fuss about back in the Old West, back in frontier times? Did husbands complain, quilting, quilting, quilting? All she ever does is quilt. Did wives complain, you and your mule? You're always looking for a new mule, talking about the Joneses mule, how it's so strong. If I hear another word about that mule... Maybe that's what they fussed about back then. Maybe it was something else. But I can tell you this. I know what couples fuss about in the 21st century. All he ever does is play his video games on his phone or on his Xbox, even to the wee hours of the night. All she ever does is scroll through Facebook. She watches funny cat videos. She's Instagramming this and Pinteresting that. We live in the digital age. And that means there's lots of connections. That means there's lots of opportunities to, to interact with the world in a way that we've never been able to before. But you know what? That also brings with it a whole lot of challenges. All of us have probably had the experience of maybe meeting up for dinner with a, with a friend that we haven't seen for a long time. Maybe even a family member who's come in from a, from a far off place. And we're looking forward to visiting with this person and talking with them and catching up with them. And in the middle of dinner, in the middle of the conversation, he or she pulls out their phone. And they're looking at their phone. And they're spending an inordinate amount of time on their phone. And as a result, we're sitting there and we kind of feel like the third wheel in this dinner date with this person and their phone. Now that's bad enough in a dinner situation one time, but... What about in a marriage? All the time. That's devastating. Here's your verse for that. Look in 1 Peter chapter 3. In 1 Peter chapter 3, let's think about honor for a second. Let's think about what it means to honor our spouse. In 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter begins, uh, well, let's let's just start in about verse 5. In 1 Peter 3 and in verse 5, as Peter is speaking to, to women, to wives, he says, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, that was a term of honor, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Verse 7 now, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. These verses, they talk about honoring. Both for husbands, explicitly stated there in verse 7, and as well for wives, that idea of practicing submission in verses 5 and 6, that that was a way of showing honor to the husband. When we talk then about honor, 
Well, what exactly do we mean by that? Well, honor is simply showing someone by our words and by our actions that they matter. We are demonstrating to them in tangible ways that they are important. In the Bible, honoring someone means to see them as special and to give them preference. That's really what we're doing this morning in our worship, isn't it? We are giving preference to God. We are showing God through our songs and through our words and in our hearts that He is special to us. We are honoring Him. Honoring is an attitude of esteem and value that says to somebody, you matter. When we can't climb out of our devices long enough to listen or to talk or to be present in the moment with our spouse, how is that honoring that other person? How does that treat them as special? How does that give our husband or our wife, how does that give them preference? I don't want anybody to misunderstand this point. This is not me ranting against technology. I am very pro-technology. In fact, I think technology can actually serve many good purposes, even good purposes in a marriage. I think about all the streaming services that are available to us to now, having all these television shows and all of these movies with just a click of a button, we can hunker down for the evening, and we can just have, kind of have a lazy night, and we're just going to binge one of those television shows together and be together. That's pretty cool, and that's pretty good. A couple of years ago, Tiffany, she got me going on this game on my cell phone called Two Dots. She was playing that game too. And we were kind of competing with one another on that game. And we were having a really good time. I'm going to check her score, and she's checking my score. It was really fun until I got really good and started really kind of beating her a lot on the game, but that's kind of par for the course. But technology can be a good thing in a marriage. Let's be honest, many times, many times that technology, it just gets in the way. It it, it just interferes. And I assure you that I am preaching this point to myself as being the chiefest of sinners here. And it's really hard for me to preach this point right now. I just got a new phone this past week. I'm excited to get on it and figure it out and do all the stuff with it. But it is astonishing to me just how easy it is to allow this little computer to get in the way. Honestly, if Tiffany was in the middle of of trying to talk to me about something, she's trying to have a conversation with me, I would never just suddenly turn and start talking to some random stranger over here on the side. Tiffany's over here talking clearly directly to me, and I just turn over here and start talking to this other person. I would never do that. But if a text message comes in, if an email chimes on my phone, I wonder how many times I've immediately reached for the phone because i I got to see who it is. got to reply. got to check on what's going on there. Even while she's right in mid-sentence trying to talk to me. And similarly, if Tiffany and I, if we were in the middle of talking, I would never allow someone, some stranger, to just come and literally stand right between us, right in the middle of us, and say, hey, you got to see this funny video of a guy falling down. Yet how many times have I allowed this device to stand between us and do that very thing? The truth is, while I'm on my phone talking and posting and shopping, and surfing, and scrolling. And in the middle of all that, I'm kind of paying Tiffany a little bit of lip service with the occasional uh-huh, 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 as if she can't tell 
What is the real priority here? What it is that is really capturing my attention? You know what I have done? I have fooled myself into thinking that, hey, us being together, that that is somehow the same as us actually being together. If you understand my meaning by that. In Matthew, the 15th chapter. In Matthew 15, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees. And when He does this, He actually quotes from Isaiah. Notice the rebuke here. Notice the the specific thing that He rebukes them for. In Matthew chapter 15, this is in verse 8. In Matthew 15 and verse 8, Jesus says, This people, they honor Me with their lips, but their heart is far from Me. Their mouths were saying the right things, but their hearts weren't there present in the moment. Now I realize that's a verse about worship. That's about a person's relationship with God. But can you see a principle there? And can you see how that principle would apply in marriage? Does our mouth ever say the right thing? Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. But the heart, the heart is actually far from our spouse. Listen, I'll tell you... There is no magic formula here. There's no five-step procedure and this is how you fix this. We just need to take our devices and put them down. Put them on silent, maybe even better. Just going to turn the thing off. I'm going to take the headset off. I'm going to power down the game system. I'm going to close all of the apps. Because this fear that we have that, oh, if I take a break from all of the digital online world that's going on, if I take a break from my device, I'm going to miss out on some kind of great thing going on out there. I'm here to tell you the result of that is we may end up missing out on something really great going on right here, right in our marriage. Give honor to your spouse. Give honor to my spouse. by putting the phone down. It's a promise worth making and a promise worth keeping. All of that, of course, I believe is undergirded by this final vow, and it is easily the most important one, and that is, I promise, I promise to glorify God and Christ with you. You'd be queuing up Colossians, the third chapter, and as you're finding Colossians chapter 3, try and think about why it is that most people get married. Uh, Some people get married because they want to be happy. Other people get married because, well, I I need the stability. I I want the stability that a marriage and a family can provide. And I'll tell you, I, I don't think that those are terrible reasons to get married. But they also are not the best reasons to get married. You want to know what the best reason to get married is? Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. Whatever you do, In word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Whatever you do, everything you do, and that would include, yes, that would include marriage. In fact, marriage must have been on Paul's mind because look at the very next verse. Here's how you can honor the Lord. Here's how you can do all in His name. Here's an area where you can apply that truth. Verse 18, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Verse 19, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Paul's talking about a marriage whose goal is to glorify God and to exalt Jesus the Christ. 
And when we have that as our goal, suddenly the emphasis is not me. You know, I'm getting married because of my personal happiness. I'm getting married because I desire stability. No. In fact, when we make this our goal, honoring and glorifying the Lord in our marriage, then the emphasis isn't on me. In fact, the emphasis isn't even on us. The emphasis becomes God. And we're serving the Lord. We're doing what's right. And of course, that has to start on an individual level. That's got to start with me. Where I am living for Christ. And I am seeking His will. And I am trying to do what's right. But that in turn is going to then cause me to help my spouse to serve Christ. And to live for Him. And to put Him first in all things. And so if I'm a husband, then husbands, that means I'm going to lead in a sacrificial way. So that my wife can follow my lead. And if I'm a wife... That means that I am going to submit in a gracious and trusting manner so that my husband can lead in love. Paul deals with that in greater detail in Ephesians 5. Just turn back a few pages in your Bible to Ephesians 5. As he gives this much more detailed instructions to husbands and to wives, as we're reading this, I want you to notice, this is maybe a different way of reading this passage, I want you to notice just how littered this passage is with language about the Lord. Paul doesn't just talk about husbands do this and wives do this and just kind of leave it at that. He talks about the Lord. He talks about Christ. He talks about how we're going to glorify God together in this relationship as we serve in these roles. Verse 22 of Ephesians 5, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, His body, and is Himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ... So also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives. There's not a period there. It goes on. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves himself, or he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it, uh-huh, it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. You see what Paul says there? Paul says that our marriages need to work in such a way that it reflects and it mirrors Christ's relationship with His church. And when we promise, when we vow that we're going to do that together, we're going to be about that as husbands and in wives, you know what we're doing? We are actually preaching a sermon. We are preaching a sermon to anyone who happens to see and observe our marriage. Because in our marriage, we are showing others, in essence, the very plan of God. That's what's unfolding there in Ephesians 5. It's a description of God's plan being unfolded. In many ways, we are reflecting the message of the gospel. And that, of course, is going to have an effect on everything that we do as a married couple. That's going to have an effect on how we raise our kids. That's going to have an effect on how we spend our money. 
It's going to determine who our friends are, who we spend time with, what kind of things we're involved in recreationally. It's going to dictate everything about our lives because we have promised that we're going to glorify the Lord together. We try to help each other to get to heaven. We get to be in the Lord's presence forever and ever. Now maybe there are some other things that could be added to that list. I'm thinking of some other really important vows and promises, like I promise not to walk in front of the TV while the ball game is on. Or I promise not to eat your chocolate bar that I know you have stashed in the back of the pantry. But in all seriousness, what we need to think carefully about are those promises that we made to one another when we said, I do. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 tells us you need to pay what you vow. What have we vowed to each other? Yes, we did pledge that we were going to stick together until death do we part. But how are we going to live together until that moment of parting occurs? Maybe these vows... Maybe they help to supplement and add to the vows that we made on our wedding day. And the good news is, is it's not too late to make our marriages stronger and more solid and more concrete by making these kinds of promises to each other. I promise on a daily basis to do these things as we serve the Lord together. That is my vow to you. Now, as we extend the invitation of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's worth us thinking about that vow idea and the idea of making a promise. Because when a person does surrender themselves in obedience to the gospel, whether they really recognize it or not in a, in a, in a vocal and, and spelled out way, that is what they're doing. Is they are making a vow and they are making a promise to God. They're saying, Lord, I'm now surrendering my life to You. I'm giving You control of my life. I am submitting to you by confessing and acknowledging Jesus as God's Son, as the Lord of Lords, as the King of Kings. I am repenting and turning away from sin, and I am turning to you, Lord. And yes, as I am baptized, buried with Christ in baptism, I am making a lifelong commitment to serve Jesus Christ. Is there someone here this morning who has not yet made that vow and is ready to? All things are ready for you to become a Christian. There's water back there. Temperature's looking good on it. Garments in the back. Myself, others who are willing to assist and help you to make the greatest promise and vow that you will ever make. And that is to serve the Lord. If you are a Christian, but maybe somewhere along the way, maybe those vows that you once made, maybe, maybe you've not been paying what you once vowed. Then brother or sister, you need to repent. You need to come back to the Lord and say, Lord, I failed you. I broke the vows that I made to you. And I'm sorry for that, Lord. And I'm placing myself at your mercy. And I'm asking for your forgiveness. Let us pray with you. Let us encourage you. Let us hold up your hands so that we can all serve God. And we can truly pay what we have vowed. Whatever your need may be this morning, you simply need to come to the front and make that known. Do that right now while we stand and while we sing.